chapter number 26 of Oliver Twists by Charles Dickens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arthur P. Antidosi. Chapter 26 in which a mysterious character appears upon the scene, and many things, inseparable from his history, are done and performed. The old man had gained the street corner, before he began to recover the effect of Craby Crackett's intelligence. He had relaxed nothing of his unusual speed, but was still pressing onward in the same wild and disorganized manner, when the sudden dashing past of a carriage and a boisterous cry from the foot-passengers who saw his danger drove him back upon the pavement, avoiding, as much as was possible, all the main streets, and scalzing only through the byways and alleys, he at length emerged on Snow Hill. Here he walked even faster than before, nor did he linger until he again turned into a court, when, as if conscious that he was now in his proper element, he fell into his usual shuffling pace and seemed to breathe more freely. Near to the spot on which Snow Hill and Holborn Hill meet, opens, upon the right hand as you come out of the city, a narrow and dismal alley leading to Saffron Hill. In its filthy shops are its bows for sale, huge bunches of second-hand silk handkerchiefs of all sizes and patterns, for here reside the traders who purchase them from pickpockets. Hundreds of these handkerchiefs hung dangling from pegs are outside windows or flaunting from the doorposts. The shells within are piled with them. Confined as the limits of field lane are, it has its barber, its coffee shop, its beer shop, its fried fish warehouse. It is a commercial colony of itself, the emporium of petty larceny, visited at early morning and setting in of dusk by silent merchants who traffic in dark back parlours, they go but strangely as they come. Here the clothesman, the shoe vamper, and the rag merchant display their goods as signboards to the petty thief. Here are stores of old iron and bones and heaps of mildewed fragments, of woollen stuff and linen, rust and rot in the grimy cellars. It was into this place that the Jew turned. It was well known to the sallow denizens of the lane, for churches of them, as were on the lookout to buy or sell, nodded familiarly as he passed along. He replied to their salutations in the same way, but bestowed no closer recognition until he reached the further end of the alley, when he stopped to address a salesman of small stature, would squeeze as much of his person into a child's chair as the chair would hold. He was smoking a pipe at his warehouse door. Why, the sorry you must have fag you, old hoptal, mate, said this respectable trader, in acknowledgment of the Jew's inquiry after his health. The neighbourhood was a little too hot, lively said Bacon, elevating his eyebrows and crossing his hands upon his shoulders. Why, I've heard of that complaint of it once or twice before, replied the traitor. But soon cools down again, don't you follow it so? Fagin nodded in the affirmative, pointing in the direction of Saffron Hill. He inquired whether any one was up yonder tonight. Or oh, quibbles? inquired the man. 
the Jew nodded. Let me see, pursued the merchant, reflecting. Yes, there's some half dozen of them gone in, that I knows. I don't think your friend's there. Sucks is not, I suppose, inquired the Jew with a disappointed countenance. Nor in one horses, as I say, replied the little man, shaking his head and looking amazingly sly. Have you got anything in my line at night? Nothing tonight, said the Jew, turning away. Are you going up with the cripples again? cried the little man, calling after him. Stop! I wouldn't mind if I had a drop there with you. But as the Jew, looking back, waved his hand to intimate that he preferred being alone, and moreover, as the little man could not very easily disengage himself from the chair, the sign of the cripples was, for a time, bereft of the advantage of Mr. Lively's presence. By the time he had got upon his legs, the Jew had disappeared, so Mr. Lively, after ineffectually standing on tiptoe, in the hope of catching sight of him, again forced himself into the little chair, and exchanging a shake of the head with the lady in the opposite shop, in which doubt and mistrust were plainly mingled, returned his pipe with a grave demeanour. The three cripples, or rather the cripples, which was a sign by which the establishment was familiarly known to its patrons, was a public house in which Mr. Sykes and his dog have already figured. Merely making a sign to a man at the bar, Fagin walked straight upstairs and opening the door of a room, and softly insinuating himself into the chamber, looked anxiously about, shading his eyes with his hand as if in search of some particular person. The room was illuminated by two gas lights, the glare of which was prevented by the barred shutters, and the closely drawn curtains of faded red from being visible outside. The ceiling was blackened to prevent its colour from being injured by the flaring of the lamps. The place was so full of dense tobacco smoke that at first it was scarcely possible to discern anything more. By degrees, however, some of it cleared away through the open door, and an assemblage of heads, as confused as the noises that greeted the air, might be made out, and as the eye grew more accustomed to the scene, the spectator gradually became aware of the presence of a numerous company, male and female, crowded round a long table, at the upper end of which sat a chairman with a hammer of office in his hand, while a professional gentleman with a bluish nose, his face tied up for the benefit of a toothache, presided at a jingling piano in a remote corner. As Fagin stepped softly in, the professional gentleman, running over the keys by way of prelude, occasioned a general cry of order for a song, which, having subsided, a young lady proceeded to entertain the company with a ballad in four verses, between each of which the accompanist played the melody all through, as loud as he could. When this was over, the chairman gave a sentiment, after which the professional gentleman on the chairman's right and left volunteered duet and sang it with great applause. It was curious to observe some faces which stood out prominently from among the group. There was the chairman himself, the landlord of the house, a coarse, rough, heavy-billed fellow, who, while the songs were proceeding, rolled his eyes hither and thither, and seemed to give himself up to jolliality, had a good eye for everything that was done, and an ear for everything that was said, and sharp ones too. 
Near him were the singers, receiving, with professional indifference, the compliments of the company, and applying themselves in turn to a dozen preferred glasses of spirit and water, tendered by their more boisterous admirer, as well as countenances, expressive of almost every vice in almost every grade, irresistibly attracted the attention by their very repulsiveness. Cunning, ferocity, and drunkenness in all its stages were there, in their strongest aspect, and women, some with the last lingering tinge of the early freshness almost fading as you looked, others with every mark and stamp of their sex utterly beaten out, and presenting but one loathsome blank of provocancy and crime. Some mere girls, others but young women, none has the prime of life, form the darkest and saddest portion of this dreary picture. Fagin, troubled no, no grave emotions, looked eagerly from face to face while the uh, proceedings were in progress, but apparently without meeting that which he was in search, succeeding, at length, in catching the eye of the man who occupied the chair, he beckoned to him slightly and left the room as quietly as he had entered it. "'What can I do for you, Mr. Fagin?' inquired the man as he formed him out in the alley and then, "'Wait to join us. It'll be the law every one of them.' The Jew shook his head impatiently and said in a whisper, "'Is he here?' "'No,' replied the man. "'And no news about me?' inquired Fane. "'None,' replied the land of the cripples, for it was he. "'I won't stir till it's all safe. Depend on it. And all is set down there, and that if he moved, he'd blow up on the head at once. He's all right, not Barney is, else I should have heard of him. Or pound it, that boy's mansion properly. Let him alone for that. Will he be here tonight? That's the jewel, laying the same emphasis on the pronoun as before. Monks, you mean? inquired the landlord, hesitating. Hush! Certain, replied the man, drawing a grey watch from his fob. I expect him here before now. If you wait ten minutes, he'll be... No, no, says the Jew hastily, as though, however desirous he might be to see the person in question, he was nevertheless relieved by his absence. Tell him I came to see him, and that he must come to me tonight. No, say tomorrow, as he is not here. Tomorrow will be time enough. Cool, said the man. Not more. Not a word now, said the Jew, descending the stairs. Ah, oh, say, said the other, looking over the stairs and speaking in a hoarse whisper. What time this will be for a cell? I've got Phil Barker here, so drunk. A boy might take him. Ah. But it's not Phil Barker's time, said the Jew, looking up. Phil has something more to do before we can afford to part with him. So go back to the company, my dear, and tell them to lead merry lives while they last. Ha! 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 The land.
landlord reciprocated the old man's laugh and returned to his guests. The Jew was no sooner alone, and his countenance resumed its former expression of anxiety and thought. After a brief election, he called a hack cabriolet and bade the man drive toward Bethnal Green. He dismissed him within some quarter of a mile of Mr. Sykes' residence, and performed the remainder of distance on foot. Now. Nah muttered the Jew as he knocked at the door. If there is any deep play here, I shall have it out of your mind, girl, cutting as you are. She was in her room, the woman said. I then crept softly upstairs and entered without any previous ceremony. The girl was alone, lying with her head upon the table and her hair straggling over it. She has been drinking, thought the Jew coolly. Or perhaps she is only miserable. The old man turned to close the door as he made his this reflection. The noise thus occasioned roused the girl. She eyed his crafty face narrowly as she inquired to his recital of Toby Crackett's story. When it was concluded, she sank into a former attitude but spoke not a word. She pushed the candle impatiently away, and once or twice she favoured she changed her position, shuffled her feet upon the ground. But this was all. During the silence, the Jew looked restlessly round the room, as if to assure himself that there was no appearances of Sykes having covertly returned. Apparently satisfied with his inspection, he coughed once or twice, and made as many efforts to open a conversation, but the girl heeded him no more than if he had been made of stone. At length he made another attempt, and rubbing his hands together, said in his most conciliatory tone, and where do you still think Bill was now, my dear? The girl moaned out some half-intelligible reply. That she could not tell, and seemed from the smothered noise that escaped her to be crying. And the boy, too, said the Jew, straining his eyes to keep a glimpse of her face. Poor little child, left in a ditch dance, only think. The child, said the girl, suddenly going up, is better where he is than among us. And if no come harm comes to Bill from it, I hope he lies dead in the ditch and his young bones may rot there. What? cried the Jew in astonishment. Aye, I do, returned the girl, meeting his gaze. I shall be glad to have him away from my eyes, and I know the worst is over. I can't bear to have him about me. The sight of him turns me against myself and all of you. Pooh, said the youth sourly. You're drunk. Am I? Either Bill bitterly. It's no fault of yours if I am not. You'd never have had anything else if you had your will. Except now. Your humour doesn't suit you, doesn't it? No, mind the youth furiously. It does not. Change it then, responded the girl with a laugh. <laughs> Change it, exclaimed the Jew, exasperated beyond all bounds by his companion's expected obstinacy and the vexation of the night. I will change it. Listen to me, you drab. Listen to me, who with six words can strangle Sykes as surely as if I had his bull's throat between my fingers now. 
If he comes back and leaves the boy behind him, if he gets off free and dead or alive fails to restore him to me, murder him yourself if you have to have him escape, Jack Ketch. And do it the moment he sets foot in this room, or mind me, it will be too late. What is all this? cried the girl, involuntary. What is all this? pursued Bacon, mad with rage. Well, the boy's worth hundreds of pounds to me. Am I to lose what chance threw me in the way of getting safely through the whims of a drunken gang that I can whistle away the lives of? And me bound to a born devil only wants a will and has the power to to panting for breath the old man stammered for a word and in that instant checked the torrent of his wrath and changed his whole demeanour a moment before his clenched hands had grasped the air his eyes had diluted and his lace gone livid with passion but now he shrunk into a chair, and cowering together, trembled with the impression of having himself disclosed some hidden villainy. After a short silence, he ventured to look round at his companion. He appeared somewhat reassured on holding her in the same listless attitude from which he had first roused her. Nancy, dear, croaked the Jew in his usual voice. Did you mind me, dear? Don't worry me now, faking, replied the girl, raising her head languidly. If Bill has not done it this time, he will another. He has done many a job for you, and will do many more when he can. When he can't, he won't, so no more about that. Regarding this boy, my dear, said the Jew, rubbing the whole of his hands nervously together. The boy must take his chance with all rest, interrupted Agency hastily. Now I say again, I hope he is dead, and out of him's way, and out of yours, that is, if Bill comes to no harm, and Toby gets clear all off. Bill's pretty sure to be safe. Bill's worth two Toby any time. And what about what I was saying, my dear? observed the Jew, keeping his glistening eye steadily upon her. You must say it all over again, if it's anything you want me to do, rejoined Nancy. And if it is, you'd better wait till tomorrow. You may pump me up for a minute, but now I'm stupid all again. Vagin put several other questions, all with the same drift of ascertaining whether the girl had profited by his unguarded hints. But she answered them so readily, and was withal so utterly unmoved by his searching looks, that his original impression of her being more than a trifle in liquor was confirmed. Nancy, indeed, was not exempt from a failing which was very common among the Jewel's female pupils, and in which their tenderer years they would be rather encouraged than checked. A disordered appearance and a wholesale perfume of Geneva which pervaded the apartment afforded strong confirmatory evidence of the justice of the Jews' supposition, and when, after indulging in a temporary display of violence above described, she subsided, first into dullness and afterwards into a compound of feelings, under the influence of which she shed tears one minute, and in the next gave utterance to various explanations of Never say die! and divers congratulations as to what might be the amount for odds so long as an 
then the old gentleman was happy. Mr. Fagin, who had a considerable experience of such matters in his time, saw, with great satisfaction, that she was very far gone indeed. Having eased his mind by this discovery, and having accomplished his twofold object of imparting to the girl what he had that night heard, and of his ascertaining with his own eyes that Sykes had not returned, Mr. Fagin again turned his face homeward, leaving his young friend asleep with her head upon the table. It was was within an hour of midnight. The weather being dark and piercing cold, he had no great temptation to loiter. The sharp wind that scoured the streets seemed to have cleared that them of passengers, as of dust and mud, for few people were abroad, and they were all, all appearances, hasting fast home. It blew from the right quarter for the Jew, however, and straight before it he went, trembling and shivering, as every fresh gust drove him rudely on his way. He had reached the corner of his own street, and was already fumbling in his pocket for the door-key, when a dark figure emerged from a projecting entrance which lay a deep shadow, and, crossing the road, glided up to him unperceived. Fagin, whispered a voice close to his ear. Ah, said the Jew, turning quickly round, is that? Yes, interrupted the stranger. I have been lingering here these two hours. Where the devil have you been? On your business, my dear, replied the Jew, glancing uneasily at his companion and slackening his pace as he spoke. On your business all night. Oh, of course, said the stranger with a sneer. Well, and what's come of it? Nothing good, said the Jew. Nothing bad, I hope, said the stranger, stopping short and turning a startled look on his companion. The Jew shook his head and was about to reply when the stranger, interrupting him, motioned to the house, before which they had by this time arrived, remarking that he had better say what he had got to say under cover, for his blood was chilled with standing about so long, and the wind blew through him. Egan looked as if he could willingly excuse himself from taking home a visitor at that unseasonable hour, and indeed muttered something about having no fire, but his companion, in repeating his request in a peremptory manner, he unlocked the door and requested him to close it softly while he got a light. It's as dark as the grave, said the man, groping forward a few steps. Make haste! Shut the door whispered Fagin from the end of the passage. As he spoke, he closed with a loud noise. That wasn't my doing, said the other man, feeling his way. The wind blew it too, on which shut of its own accord, one way or the other. Look sharp with the light, or I shall knock my brains out against something in this confounded hole. Fagin stealthily descended the kitchen stairs. After a short absence, he returned with a lighted candle. In the intelligence that Toby Crackett was asleep in the back room below, and that the boys were in the front room. Beckoning the men to follow him, he led the way upstairs. We can serve the few words we've got to say in here, my dear, said the Jew, throwing open a door on the first floor. 
and as there are holes in the shutters, and we never show lights to our neighbours, we will set the candle on the stairs. There. With all those words, the Jew, stooping down, placed the candle on an upper flight of stairs exactly opposite to the room door. This done, he led the way into the apartment, which was destitute of all movables save a broken armchair, and an old couch or sofa without covering, which stood beyond the door. Upon this piece of furniture, the stranger sat himself with the air of a weary man. The Jew, drawing up uh, an armchair opposite, they sat uh, face to face. It was not quite dark. The door was partially open, and the candle outside threw a feeble reflection on the opposite wall. They conversed for some time in whispers, though nothing of the conversation was distinguishable beyond a few disjointed words here and there. The listener might easily have perceived that Fagin appeared to be defending himself against some remarks of a stranger, but the later was in a state of considerable irritation. They might have been talking thus for a quarter of an hour or more, when monks, by which name the Jew had designated the strange man several times in the course of this uh, colloquy, said, raising his voice a little, I tell you, it was badly planned. Why not have called him here among the rest, and made a sneaking, snivelling pickpocket of him at once? Only hear him, exclaimed the Jew, shrugging his shoulders. Why do you mean to say you couldn't have done it if you had chosen? demanded Monk sternly. Haven't you done it with other boys scores of times? If you had had patience for a twelve month at most, couldn't you have got him convicted and sent safely out of the kingdom, perhaps for life? Whose turn would that serve, my dear? inquired the Jew humbly. Mine! replied Monks. But not mine, said the Jew submissively. He might have become of use to me. When there are two parties to a bargain, it is only reasonable that the interests of both should be consulted, is it, my good friend? What then? demanded Monks. I thought it was not easy to train him for the business, replied the Jew. He was not like other boys in the same circumstances. Curse him now, muttered the man. Oh, I would have been a thief long ago. I had no hold upon him to make him worse, pursued the Jew, anxiously watching the countenance of his companion. His hand was not in... I had nothing to frighten him with, which we almost must have in the beginning, or we labour in vain. What could I do? Send him out with the Dodger and Charlie? We had enough of that at first, my dear. I trembled for us all. That was not my doing, observed Monks. No, no, my dear renewed the Jew, and I don't quarrel with it now, because if it had never happened, you might never have clapped eyes on the boy to notice him, and so led to the discovery that it was him you were looking for. Well, I got him back for you by means of the girl, and then she began to favour him. Throttle the girl, said Monks impatiently. 
Why, we can't allow that to that just now, my dear, replied the Jew, smiling. Besides, that sort of thing is not our way. Or one of these days I might be glad to have it done. I know what these girls are, monks, well. As soon as the boy begins to harden, she'll care no more for him than for a block of wood. You want him made a thief? If he is alive, I could make him one from this time. And if, if, said the Jew, drawing near to the other, it's not likely mine, but if the worst comes to worst, and he is dead. It's no fault of mine if he is, interposed the other man with a look of terror and clasping the Jew's arm with trembling hands. Mind that begin! I had no hand in it. Anything but his death, I told you from the first. I won't shed blood. It's always found out. Nonsense, man, besides. If they shot him dead, I was not the cause. Do you hear me? Fire this internal den! What's that? What? The Jew grasping a card round the body with both arms as he sprung to his feet. Where? Yonder, replied the man, glaring at the opposite wall. The shadow! I saw the shadow of a woman! And a cloak and bonnet passed along the wainscot like a breath! The Jew released his hold, and they rushed tumultuously from the room. The candle, wasted by the drawer, was standing where it had been placed. It showed them only the empty staircase and their own white faces. They listened intently. A profound silence reigned throughout the house. It's your fancy, said the Jew, taking up the light and turning to his companion. I swear I saw it, replied Lunks, trembling. It was bending forward when I saw it first, and when it spoke, it darted away. The Jew glanced contemptuously at the pale face of his associate, and telling him he could follow, if he pleased, descended the stairs. They looked into all the rooms. They were cold, bare, and empty. They descended into the passage, and then into the cellars below. Green damp hung upon the low walls. The tracks of the snail and the slug glistened in the light of the candle, but all was still as death. What do I think now? said the Jew, when they had regained the passage. Besides ourselves, there's not a creature in the house except Tobia and the boys, and they are safe enough. See here. As a proof of the fact, the Jew drew forth two keys from his pocket and explained that when he first went downstairs, he locked them in to prevent any intrusion on the conference. This accumulated testimony effectually staggered Mr. Bunks. His protestations had gradually become less and less vehement as they proceeded in their search without making any discovery, and now he gave vent to several very grim laughs. In fact, it could only have been his excited imagination. He declined any renewal of the conversation, however, for that night, only remembering that it was past one o'clock, and so the amiable couple parted. End of chapter 26